Joe, we've been looking at the Four Noble Truths, um, this foundational teaching of um, what I'm going to call in this moment Buddhist psychology. Um, and again, I use that term because that's really how I relate to these teachings. Um, there are um, infinite ways that these teachings land in the heart for all people. And so huge respect for um, however that is for you. And these teachings for me have been enormously helpful for untangling what goes on in my own mind um, and getting a lot more clarity and a lot more wisdom and a deepening of compassion for how to meet this life just as it is. So these four noble truths um, are really a foundation, if not the foundation of, of um, the basic teachings of the Buddha, what causes suffering and what relieves suffering. The four truths are first, that there is suffering in life. Uh, that word in, in the old um, Pali language is dukkha, and it actually means a whole lot more than just what we think of as suffering kind of like a dissatisfaction. There can be, even in the midst of pleasant moments, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, there can be kind of an underlying dis-ease, unsatisfactoriness that can be present right in those moments. And so it's, it's pointing to that whole range. Second noble truth is there's a cause for that cause is clinging, um, craving, and that's the most proximal cause. Um, um, not, not the whole story, of course, all the causes and conditions underneath it. The most proximal cause to our suffering is trying to hold on. The third is there's a way out, and the fourth is the path. Uh, so I think we are finally going to finish the second noble truth. This is part three. Uh, and I have to say it has been very fruitful for me to, to kind of take a deep dive into looking closer at all the ways clinging manifests for me. Uh, so I hope this has been useful for you as well. I'm going to start with this week. I did a four-day retreat wonderful Thursday through Sunday. Uh, and one of the teachers of the retreat used the phrase, the wisdom of dukkha. Remember, dukkha is that Pali word for suffering dissatisfaction. That phrase, the wisdom of our suffering, that's really not a um, common idea in um, certainly in American culture. I can, <laughs> I can speak for that. Um, uh, and it's very helpful to turn our usual way of thinking, if I want to be happy in life, I have to get away from my suffering. I have to get rid of my pain. The reality is there's no way to do that. So this phrase, the wisdom of our suffering, it means that there is a um, necessity of learning actually to listen, to pay heed to the dissatisfaction, to the suffering that, that arises. And there's a way that we can do that, that we actually learn open um, in ways that are useful and actually freeing for our life. So just the teacher 
who used this phrase, the wisdom of dukkha. Um, he taught from this beautiful, grounded, peaceful, gentle, and very good-humored place. And he's been working with brain cancer for the last two or three years. So for him to use that phrase, the wisdom of dukkha, that, that has some meaning um, to it. What he was pointing to is that with these first two truths, there is suffering and it has a cause, which is clinging, is that there's so much more to understand than that surface of simple telling of them. There is a certain kind of work and internal engagement, a work of internal engagement that's required for these truths um, to be of service in our life. Engaging with the truth of clinging is a source of our suffering. If I do that, I can learn that there's a way I can relate to things that happen that has this element of craving, grasping, clinging, desiring, whatever words you want to call it, um, greed. Um, I can relate to things with that flavor and learn, absolutely, as I have had to do many times in my life, that it just magnifies my suffering. It just increases the pain that is present in my life. And if I'm paying attention, I can also learn that the same things, no matter how challenging or difficult, there is this possibility of relating to reality of what's here that's free of that craving for it to be different. And I find out again and again and again that that actually reduces suffering in my life. Actually makes me wiser, stronger, more compassionate with facing whatever um, I want to face. I think back um, on the retreat, that teacher's smile and his just palpable good humor, even with brain cancer, that was a powerful testament to the truth of this possibility. And when we start to engage it with this in, with ourselves, then we don't know that as a truth out there for that person. We begin to find, is this true for me? And if I start tasting that truth for me, then it's interesting to see how that opens the practice. So this is a hard-earned wisdom that has nothing to do with an instruction to smile, grin and bear it, um, um, kind of a Pollyanna approach of everything's good. Um, when it's not, it's really an honest, authentic reckoning with conditions of life, even when they're really hard, that there's a way I can stand right in the heart of sometimes what feels like fire, looking into the root of impermanence, of changing with this kind of mindful um, attitude and learn how to dance. I love Philip Moffat's um, title of his book, Dancing with Life, that this is how we actually learn 
to dance with some freedom with um, the full of life. So for today, finishing up on the second noble truth, you know, we could go on for the rest of the year on this, but at some point we need to pull it to a close. Uh, I'm really drawing uh, very heavily from Philip Moffat's book, Dancing with Life, um, and his um, writings on the second noble truth. Strongly recommend that book if you haven't read it. Uh, so there are three main things that uh, we cling to in these Buddhist teachings. Um, there are one, sense cravings, two, cravings for existence and becoming what we are not, and then the third one is craving for non-existence. So we will talk about all three of them, but I just want to say at the beginning, this is not meant to be some laundry list of all of the things that, that I do that are bad. Um, um, rather, it is um, a list for insight, for contemplation um, of what might be causing suffering for my life. You know, when you hear this list, what do you learn and know about um, clinging for your own self? So the first one, sense cravings. Uh, the first three that he lists are food, sound, and silence. <laughs> don't think I need to say much about food. Um, I think everyone can kind of get that one. Um, um, sound and silence, that one's interesting. Uh, for me, it was a while of riding a certain kind of roller coaster to realize that, you know, there were times when my house was really full of a lot of, of girl energy that there, that there would arise in me this like craving for, for silence. But then they'd all go away and you know, boomerang right back. And it's kind of lonely. It's too quiet. And there's like craving for the, for the sound. And after kind of writing that up and down a few times, it was really helpful to recognize, oh, this is just habit of craving for something different than what I have. And I don't need to make a big story about it. It's just right now, the house is very full. Right now, the house is very quiet. And there's room to have appreciation and care for, for both of that. Since cravings also include um, cravings for physical comfort in the body. Uh, touch, affection, sexual comfort. All of these are normal, natural, healthy desires, um, healthy things. And there's a way that we can get caught up in craving them that becomes unhealthy, um, um, not real fruitful for our life. So remember, none of these are about any kind of essence of badness in them. Um, it's really about learning to learning what ways do we relate to authentic needs that has some wholesome care and what ways do we relate to authentic needs that's actually adding suffering to the fact of I have this need and I'm adding suffering onto the fact that the need's not there, not being met. Other sense cravings. Um, this one's interesting. Pleasant, 
attractive sights, smells, and thoughts that are confirming, useful, stimulating, reassuring. I had an interesting moment with um, um, everything I just named in that one um, with my retreat. Retreat started on Thursday. By Saturday, uh, my daughter had gone on a short trip and I had gotten into my retreat groove and I was just having one of those stunningly beautiful retreat days. That's kind of like the the um, um, extra benefit of this practice is that you do, if you stick with this, our, our nervous systems are wired to let go in ways that are really um, kind of even profoundly pleasant, um, peaceful, calming in a way that's, that's very nourishing um, to our systems. And right there is what our nervous systems can do with pleasant. I want more. So I'm in the middle of this like just profoundly beautiful, stunningly beautiful retreat day. And I suddenly have this thought of, oh, shoot, this is going to end tomorrow. <laughs> retreat is going to be done tomorrow. And the lovely thing about the, and then, oh, and I felt my system just go like that um, around it. Ever had a vacation that it was really hard to enjoy the vacation because you were so worried about coming back and facing reality on the Monday after vacation? You know, it was kind of that. The lovely thing about the retreat is there's nothing wrong with that coming up. If it comes up and we turn towards it, it can be very useful. So just to be able to step back and, and go, oh, <laughs> There's craving, there's clinging. And this is what we use mindfulness for. Where is it in my body? Wow, it's this, this contraction that's just happened. It's this, this internal kind of wanting, hungry, um, that uh, I know is not gonna get satisfied um, um, by getting what it thinks it wants. I mean, because there is no possibility of endless you know like if somehow I just like took a magic wand and turned my life into retreat for the rest of it the rest of my life eventually you know I'd be craving for the busyness of life again and and wanting to be out of it so um just to be able to acknowledge that kind of it didn't make it go away but it gave me space around it that could see it in a different way. And then it was just very interesting out of that kind of more settled place and feeling it, had this very clear thought. Oh, I bet my daughter's gonna come home early. 45 minutes later, she calls me up and says, she's coming home early. Uh, and having all of that happen, meant that when she called me and said that, all I felt was this joy of, oh, I get my daughter back. Isn't that sweet? As opposed to if I had still been grooving in that clinging to the retreat can't, can't go away, I could have I been like, really? You don't want to stay on your trip? <laughs> Which would not have been very useful for our relationship. So it was a sweet freeing to kind of see this. Other thing I want to say about craving um, for the pleasant, I think there's a way that it's 
incredibly important to notice where that comes up with the big stuff happening in our world. Um, there is a, a wholesome intention for wanting peace, justice, um, echo justice, for um, wanting care, you know, for the people who can't get the vaccinations, um, um, for the, the really, really difficult things in our world that's a right orientation. And it's really easy for that to contract into a survival kind of fight, flight, freeze, um, reactivity mode that is not a healthy way of, I want the pandemic to end today. That's never gonna make it end. I want justice for all people in the world today. The orientation towards how do I care for this intention for our larger and whole world? We need that. But when I start contracting into a greed for reality to be different than it is in this moment now, I'm not so useful to the world anymore. So just interesting to work with where our larger wholesome wishes for goodness in the world can actually turn into places find out for you where where is it useful and where does it contract into internal suffering and maybe adding suffering in the world um the second one just looked at the clock um craving for existence, becoming what you are not or not enough of to satisfy you. So Philip Moffat names um, wealthy, athletic, sexually desirable. Just finished a book, Into the Magic Shop, um, written by a neurosurgeon who grew up with um, deep poverty. Um, his childhood, he had the kind of childhood that there was a certain kind of loud knocking on the door that set him into fear that it was the sheriff coming to evict them again. Um, so really intense um, um, poverty needs. So as a, as a young boy, he set his intention to grow up and have enough money uh, that he would never have to fear for financial insecurity again. So he got, as an adult, um, um, to the place that he had $75 million. And he realized that even with $75 million, it still couldn't satisfy that hole that he was trying to have money satisfy. It still, it still wasn't enough. Um, couldn't give the kind of security that he craved. I could give a lot more examples for that one and certainly have had um, um, other ones in my life, but I think in terms of time, I'm going to uh, leave that one there uh, and just offer the question to notice in your own life, where does this wish to be something change from a wholesome directing my life in a, in a helpful way 
to an unwholesome um, um, struggle um, in a way that's no longer useful. Uh, craving for existence. The name of the book, by the way. Oh, Dancing with Life. Philip Moffat, Dancing with Life. So the third one, uh, Craving for Non-Existence. This is when we get overwhelmed by chronic pain, difficult emotions, wanting to hide, cover up, uh, ever done something really embarrassing, and you just want to disappear. That's this one. Um, clearly the, um, ultimate of it is suicide. Um, and it's really helpful to notice small ways that shows up all the time in our lives. Um, I like puzzles. I like Sudoku. I don't do them very often. So the once in a blue moon, when I do one, it's kind of nice to sit down and do it. There was a time when I was really stressed in my life and I got into this pattern of doing, 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 doing Sudoku in a way that was totally unwholesome, no longer pleasant, but still doing them. And so I get really curious, you know, what's this about? And suddenly it dawned on me, oh, I'm really stressed. But when I'm doing the puzzle, I've disappeared. I'm no longer like really here. Um, it was a craving for non-existence. So look for these in your own life. Where does craving show up for you? Get really curious about all of the little disguises um, that plain old craving might be hiding in. Um, where healthy desire, um, um, healthy intention becomes unhealthy obsession. And this is where mindfulness comes in. It's where the learning the primary anchor, that source of non-reactive um, opening stability for our nervous system uh, can be so useful for finding a way to stand in that fire and a different kind of natural intelligence and compassion can start to arise in our system. when we start to have those kind of insight moments, that's when we really begin to understand the power and the freedom of this practice. And that's really what the third noble truth is pointing to, um, that there is a way out of this suffering. And so we'll have to leave it there and move on to the third noble truth next week. So thank you.